You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is James McFadden, co-founder and co-CEO of Collab. James and his brother started the digital content studio in early 2012 after an earlier digital venture called Go Potato TV. Since then, they've amassed a powerful creator network that reaches over 230 million followers and generates 7 billion loops per month on Vine. He's a Bruin, but we won't hold that against him. So James, welcome to the show. Thanks. (laughs) How did you find your way into the digital space? Well, I guess we could start back at my days of being a Bruin, or if you want to go all the way back. So no, I, I graduated college in 2001. So if I'm dating myself, I guess that'll give you a good estimate of how old I am. But anyways, after I got out of school, I wanted to get into production right away. So I was fortunate to get a job as a production assistant working under Jonathan Sanger. He's a, a well-known traditional film producer, did a lot of movies with Tom Cruise, like Vanilla Sky, Mission Impossible. He was uh, did The Elephant Man, which was like Academy Award winning. So a really great guy and a great mentor. And I started working for him pretty much right out of college. The first movie that we did was uh, Suspect Zero. So I was a production assistant at his office in LA, and then we traveled to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was working on the set as a PA out there. I kind of just started learning the ropes, like really at all aspects of production, just from the ground up and working under him. But after working on that movie, I, I kind of got, a, you know, I had opportunities to continue working as crew on on different films and projects. And I realized like there's no really no easy career path to becoming a great producer. Like it's very difficult. And and to become, to work through all the different positions on a crew is really tough too. So after doing that, I was freelancing for a while and then decided I wanted to start my own company in around 2005. And What and prompted it, that decision to start your own business? Well, you know, my brother, Tyler, he, he had graduated college. He's two years younger than me. He got out and we always kind of wanted to work together. And we noticed that, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of work as a you know, production assistant, production coordinator, all different areas of, of traditional film, TV, commercial, and just saw that there was a lot of changes happening and that there was a lot of opportunity with mobile video and online content, you know, and independently produced. So we started our first company, Go Potato TV, in 2006. And the idea of that was for, it was the couch potato who's on the go basically was so it was awesome off the couch entertainment was kind of our tagline. And we were thinking about creating content for mobile video at the time. Vcast was kind of a popular thing that Verizon had. We were trying to figure out, okay, what kind of content can we create that 
could make it onto Vcast or, you know, at that time, YouTube wasn't even monetizing. We had our own website. We were trying to create a destination where our original content could get discovered. And then we were looking to license it from there. So we were fortunate that we did actually create good content and we were able to license one of our shows, Eli's Dirty Jokes. We made a deal with HBO and Cinemax to to license that. We'd originally created 16 episodes, 17 episodes independently. And they were all just one, you know, it, the show is an animated series of jokes told by our old accountant and they were one minute long, roughly. So we did about 16, 17 episodes and then we were able to get that deal. So they ordered initially eight episodes for TV with the option to do 10 more and another option to do 10 more. So they did the full eight, the full, the next 10 and then the next 10. So they did, That's incredible. they did all 28 and licensed the library for their on-demand and stuff. So, and the so, character was inspired by the Go Potato TV uh, account? He was actually our actual accountant, yeah. <laughs> okay. and, and it was him not doing a character. It was just his normal kind of voice, and it was it was like inspired by him. Um, and who did the animation? And the animation was done by a guy named Doug Bressler. He has a, a site called Duke Tunes, and he was uh, we went to high school together. He was a friend of mine, and I you know seen some of his early artwork and and uh, thought okay this would be a perfect fit bring him in bring Eli we'll have him do this unique style of telling jokes so that really worked and then from there we you know built our relationship with YouTube all along we were like in the first elements of the YouTube partner program you know I remember being on an early phone call with George Trompolis when he was at YouTube and he was telling us okay you know, we're just letting a few people now, like we're excited to have you guys on board. And we were really hoping that there was going to be like $25 CPMs for the, for the creators. Obviously that didn't pan out quite that way, but you know, we, I remember the early days of working with YouTube and then we wanted to, we always wanted to kind of create our own network because we felt like, you know, we were looking at it from a premium content perspective. We were never vloggers or we were never like, um, we're going to create daily UGC type of content. We were always like, we want to create professionally produced content. We want to have a budget. We want to have, you know, a crew and editing and all these things cost money. And we don't want to just throw something up on YouTube. We want it to be high quality. So we were always trying to figure out a business model that could sustain that. So one of the early ideas we had was to create something called the Comedy Alliance. We had talked to you about 10 to 15 of the top comedy channels at the time. This was like around 2009, I think. And we were looking to get our own ad sales team so we could sell ads across those channels or for like a premium comedy brand. But anyways, we ended up, YouTube wasn't really facilitating that for us to happen. But what ended up happening was we started working with Next New Networks and we were, we made a bit of a, almost a sub network under Next New Networks. And what was the subnetwork called? Was that still part it? Was of just the Comedy Alliance, and I that see. actually ended up turning into Comedy Thunder a little bit, which mm-hmm. was like a group of comedy channels that were brought under Next New Networks that created a bunch of sketches during this certain amount of time, and they had a little bit of budget behind it, so they would give each of the channels eight hundred bucks to make a video or whatever. But we ended up becoming really close with Next New Networks, and they were based in New York. We were based in LA. We had you know a studio space with a green screen in downtown we kind of became their LA studio. So all the creators that were in LA would come in and film in our studio 
they would just kind of pay us a monthly retainer to use the space for a certain amount of days or hours or however that worked. Then when they got acquired by Google, that kind of continued into the first round of those funded channels. So, so what did that mean for you when Next New Networks was acquired by YouTube? We were actually kind of worried because like we were not sure if we were going to lose our our studio deal that we had at that time, Go Potato, while it was a successful YouTube channel, it wasn't making like a ton of profit or anything. It wasn't hardly making enough money for us to pay our bills. So the studio business was supplementing that, you know, on the side, we were renting out the studio and shooting and editing for, for other people. You know, the biggest client that we had really was next to network. So when it got acquired by Google, we were wondering, okay, well, are they going to stop using our studio, but actually it started increasing. So we found that was good. And then we were pretty helpful in consulting with them before they built the the YouTube studio. We kind of had already submitted them some like plans. The YouTube Space LA. Yeah, for the YouTube Space LA. So once by that time, we'd already created Collab and we'd already kind of moved off of that. So where did that deal. come from? And where did, how did Collab come about? Well, uh, it happened in, I would say late 2011. We just kind of saw that it, the timing was right. The opportunity was there. In early 2012 was when we started the company. And by, I want to say by like April of 2012, we had pretty much just entirely stopped doing anything else and just solely focused 100% on collab and started hiring people and building it out from there. I mean, we really, we bootstrapped it kind of just from scratch. So built off of the you know, using our existing space and our existing studio that we had with Go Potato and our existing connections started collab and then it really took off. And you've been self-funded the whole time? Yep. What is the hardest part of starting your own company? I think, you know, executing, I mean, having a good idea is not too uncommon, but really executing on that vision and getting it to a place where it can sustain itself. That's the most difficult part. So really like those first four months of starting collab were, were the most difficult. Um, and then, and yet that's incredible traction to get that quickly. It was, yeah, it, it happened pretty fast for us. It was just, it was just a matter of getting enough scale quickly so that we could afford to, you know, cover our, our overhead basically. And then from there we could continue to grow. And as we grew, hire more help and keep expanding. Yeah, so you've been fairly contrarian in a space dominated by MCNs that have raised a lot of money, uh, MCNs that have made a big play at YouTube, but you know you were really early to Vine and other platforms. What has given you a different philosophy or set you apart? I mean, I think a lot of that comes from my background as a creator myself, as a producer and a YouTube creator, knowing that there's a lot of bad deals out there. It doesn't necessarily make sense for a network to just sign up 50,000 or 100,000 channels when you know that you're not going to really give the same level of service or support to those people because just the economics of it don't work. If you're on the bottom of that list, what value is the network really going to be able to provide you? I mean, other than, yeah, software tools are great and, you know, general forums and things. And I, I know there's a lot of things that networks do really well, but we were not looking at it from like the perspective of, oh, you're, you know, the bottom tier. We, we want to work with the people who are really serious about doing it as a, as a career and as a profession. And so those people, we felt like they need a more hands-on approach. They need some, but they need it, you know, just 
somebody that they can call on the phone and somebody that can guide them and give them, you know, tips on how to not just how to optimize your videos, but which is extremely valuable, but what kind of videos they should be making and what, you know, how to improve their online persona, how to improve that business. How many creators do you work with today? I'd say, I think we have about 800 in the network. Probably, I'd say 320 Viners, I think, around there. Uh, we actually have a pretty large network in uh, Asia, Korea, and Japan, too. So we have a lot of creators over there. Why those territories specifically? Well, um, one of my partners, Song Kang, he's our COO. He, early on, was like, I see opportunity. And we had all kind of come together where in 2013, it was a really competitive landscape when you were looking at you know, YouTube and YouTube various networks. Uh, so the general method of channel recruiting was to try to find somebody either using, I don't know, Social Blade or VidStatsX or try to get some kind of list. I mean, this is before Tubular, I think. Maybe we, we started using Tubular when they were starting out too, just to try to help find good quality potential partners. But at that time, a lot of the recruiting was go onto YouTube's message inbox, which was awful, and try to say, hi, we are a network. We can give you this and that. And it was so flooded with spam because, and I mean, it's still true today. It's the YouTube messaging is pretty much 99% junk mail that these people get. So to try to get through to them through that means was not very realistic. And then we were like, how else can we, you know, find really good talent? And so we thought, okay, well, you know, Vine, it's just starting out. This is a really interesting platform. We realized that, you know, these people are funny. They're starting to get a big following. Could they do well on YouTube? I think so. Why not? It's worth a shot. I'd rather sign somebody who has now 500,000 followers on Vine than somebody who has uh, 500 subscribers on YouTube. There's a big head start there. Even if they don't have a single YouTube video, they're already building an audience and they're already showing some some talent. So that was the that was that first thought. And then we also were Song was thinking, well, you know, he is Korean and he's like, I'm looking at these markets. They're underserved. There's so many MCNs, you know, in the United States. And yeah, they're international, but a lot of them are using Google Translate to send these messages. A lot of them are using, you know, basic, just typing their recruitment message into Google Translate and hitting Russian, Chinese, you know, Japanese, uh, Korean, whatever. It, it doesn't work that well. So we realized that there was a gap there. And I think the market was just a couple of years behind and they didn't fully grasp that people were starting to make a living on YouTube. And so there was a lot of opportunity to really get in there. So we had a team that we hired uh, native Korean speakers and, and native Japanese speakers to, you know, not just sign these channels, but also support them in their native languages and kind of guide them using the same kind of philosophy that we used to build collab to build in those regions. And now we have an office in Seoul with a few people working directly in Korea to support that that Korean market. And also, you know, we have some guys in Japan, you know, part-time. So that's incredible. I didn't yeah. realize you were on the ground opening offices there. 
Are there other markets that you have your eye on for international expansion? Um, I mean, I think uh, we're very interested in China and Yuku. What do you think now that it's been acquired by Alibaba? I know that some of our content is on there. So I think that there's an opportunity. I don't know how it all works. I know that it's always tricky play to deal with uh, any Chinese businesses, but you know, we've had some, we've had some talks, early talks and some opportunities maybe coming up. So, you know, I think that we're going to keep a, a close eye on it and hopefully we can work something out so that we can maybe, maybe we can open an office there too. I don't know. So you've built and managed businesses now for over seven years with your brother, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Have you two always been close and has the yeah. co-CEO model ever proved challenging or provoked conflict? I think it's always challenging, but we kind of really mesh well together. We've always been close. I mean, we have, there's three brothers. So Will is our, I'm the oldest, Tyler's the middle, Will's the youngest. Will, he's the actor of the family. So, you know, our dad was an actor. Tyler and I both kind of wanted to get into more of the business aspects of entertainment. And Will was always more of the, you know, star, so to speak. So he, you know, he's in the actor's gang. He was an actor in a lot of our sketches, you know, really talented guy. He runs the creative team now at Collapse. So they get to do a lot of the fun stuff and a lot of the shoots and works directly with the talent on developing some of their content. But Tyler and I, yeah, we were always close growing up, only two years apart. So we spent a lot of time together when we were kids. And then as we got out of school, he was, I lived right next door to him and we were always, you know, together. And so working together, we complement each other really well. So Tyler is, is, is very, I'm a little more creative sometimes when it comes to wanting to jump on something early or some kind of trend that I see ahead of time. And Tyler is really very analytical. So he'll come in and kind of help steer it in the right direction. It's and, the conservative force yeah. against your <laughs> yeah. excitement for new ideas. That's good. It seems like that structure has worked well for you too. Yeah, it's worked really well for us. I mean, and, and you know, we're always, we're a close family. So it, we kind of tend to balance each other out. So like I said, if I have an idea and I think it's going too far, he'll pull me back in. And, and if, you know, if he has something, then I could say, well, we can add this or that. And then, you know, we kind of bounce off each other really well. What are you most excited about for 2016? I think just kind of expanding a lot of our original production stuff. We recently have built out this TV production team. So we're working with some of the select talent from our network that, and it's not, doesn't have to be the person with the biggest amount of followers. It's, it's not, it's actually the people with who have the most crossover to television fit, which means like there has to be an interesting family surrounding them or an interesting story or some kind of something beyond what you'll see on their Vine, Instagram, YouTube that makes for, you know, enough to have a 30 minute or longer format show. So we've got three of those right now that we're, we're dealing with networks on and, you know, I'm excited and hopeful that something will, will get picked up for a full series. And we've got a bunch more in development. And, you know, I think with all these other new digital buyers, I'm, hopeful and excited that we're going to be selling a lot more digital shows too. So I think that's going to be our big area of growth next year. And I'm really looking forward to that. It seems like with the background in digital productions and exposure to traditional entertainment, you've bridged that gap well. 
which is something most people struggle to do. What are the secrets to effectively navigating the digital traditional divide? I mean, I think you have to be able to adapt. I think you have to look at, you know, technology and see how to make something that fits. So you can't just make the same type of content that you were making for TV 30 years ago now. You know, you have to kind of integrate social media. You have to integrate you know, the new advances in equipment and, and how can you produce it faster for less and more efficiently? And how can you get some of this digital talent that has such a massive audience online to translate over to, you know, traditional entertainment and just kind of crossing back and forth, you know? One of Collab's core values is weirdos welcome. How do you express your inner weirdo? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I think if you watch some of our old sketches, you'll see some of that. Um, but, Are you in any of the sketches? Uh, no, I mean, I directed a lot of them. Uh-huh. It's just um, we like to have a sense of humor. I mean, I think that comes also from our, our comedy background. And, you know, we have we like the office to be a fun work environment where, you know, people can, if they want to, take a break and play video games. So, you know, we're not going to stand there and hold over, a, you know, a clock and a whip on them and say, you know, keep at your desk. We, we like people to kind of roam around and have fun. And but at the same time, you know, they get their job done because they know that they enjoy doing what they do. So I think weirdos welcome is just kind of a funny catchphrase just because, you know, and a lot of our creators we work with are just have really crazy, funny, weird senses of humor. And I know we've always kind of latched onto that Tim and Eric sensibility. And just so, yeah, we just kind of try not to take ourselves too seriously. What do you like to do for fun? I think work, I have fun at work too. So what do I like to do for fun? Watch sports games or go, you know, I like going to UCLA football games. I I went to one this year, which I went to more. Um, What else? Just hanging out. I don't know. Well, I don't really have any, I haven't had too much fun, I guess, outside the office. Lately. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's plenty of fun to be had inside the office. So that's great. Do you participate in the uh, impromptu video game breaks? No. No, not a gamer. Uh, well, I mean, I kind of gave up um, my gaming career when I got into college and realized like I would rather have a social life and actual career. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Time to hang up the jersey. Yeah. What has been your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? My greatest failure business-wise right now so far has been we tried to launch a site called seenityet.com. It was a really cool idea and actually a very cool site. We spent a lot of our own time and money building it, but we kind of ran out of our own money and time and it got to a place where we just couldn't support it. What was the goal of the site? So uh, Seen It Yet was a site that was based around solving the problem of discovery for online video. So it was similar to a Reddit or a dig video, but we just kind of wanted to put a a community out there that was just based on video. So the way it worked was anybody could choose a link from at the time we had YouTube, funny or die college humor break daily motion. So anyways, the way it would work is you copy and paste your link from any of these sites. It pulls in an embedded video from any one of those sites. And then the community can vote on it, thumb up or thumb down. The most popular videos will then land on the homepage. So it's meant to be like a mixture of what's the best of 
YouTube, Funny or Die, College Humor, Break. We wanted to make like one place where you could go and find everything. And it was really, it was actually a really cool site. It's just, we didn't have, we kind of ended up spending all of our resources on the development. And then we kind of ran out of gas when it came to supporting the site and marketing the site and, and really kind of building it out. But so I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about sort of bootstrapping and problems you can run into when you're underfunded on a project and sort of building something without having everything else in place at the time. So, so, you know, I'd say that was our, our biggest mistake, but I also felt like it was a valuable lesson that I learned. And, you know, who knows, maybe we can bring it back. So we can turn that failure around into a success because Uh we've been talking about reviving the brand. I mean, I think it's a good name still. Well, we would, the plan as to revive it is to use our analytics from Ranksu to create the curated version of the site. Then we'd want to pull in from Vine and Instagram, probably just to start. So it would take like the most viral trending videos based on data from Instagram and Vine. And then people could still like vote on them. That seems smart because with a platform like that, I think you would do better with shorter form content, yeah. especially, you know, six seconds from Vine or 15 right. seconds from Instagram. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you could have, and I, I think there's still a place for it. I don't really think it's been, I mean, and Reddit is awesome, but Reddit is its own community and um, it doesn't necessarily cross the whole mainstream of what's popular online. You know, it makes its own trends, you know. What else has your internal team built or what other kind of uh, projects have you been focused on? RankZoo is, is the main one. I think, our own dashboard is the other one. And we're building some brand tech. What kind of work do you do with brands today? Uh, it's mainly sponsored content, whether it's on you know, Vine, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat. Generally, they're custom campaigns based around the talent in our network. And you know, our sales team will come up with creative ideas for, okay, well, you have this certain brand. These are the people that you would you know, think would be a great fit and come up with certain ideas and a budget and put it all together. So what books have you read recently that you just couldn't put down? Um, I mean, lately I, I've been reading a lot of scripts because we're looking at getting into doing our first feature. So I've been kind of focusing on that. I'm also planning to get audible from my girlfriend for Christmas. So I'll be ramping up my audio book reading. Maybe I can and including this podcast, I'll, I'll slip that in there. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the main stuff. But if you have any other, if you have any recommendations, send them my way. I'm, I don't have anything to plug right now. I am <laughs> notorious for just reading pretty much nerdy business books. So okay. if you love those, I have plenty of recommendations. Sure. But I just finished reading. This is a departure for me. I just read The Martian. Uh, which was recommended awesome. to me by Adam Reimer, who's also a guest nice. on the podcast and uh, and some others and loved it. Couldn't put it down. It was really good. I uh, need to see the movie now, but I'm glad I read the book. Yeah, I didn't see the movie. I probably should read the book first and mm-hmm. then see the movie. I have an ebook copy, so if you want, okay. I'll, I'll send it your way. But in terms of great business books that I read this year, I mean, there's classics like Zero to One, um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I also mm-hmm. finished, uh, speaking of Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Mark Andreessen's blog series, called the Pimarka Blog Archive, which is essentially a collection of his learnings being in, in the startup space and in technology for so many years. Uh, so those, nice. those are some of my favorites. But I listen to a lot of podcasts and need to step up my audiobook game as well. <laughs> so I hear you there. 
What's coming next? If you know you're looking at the landscape, what three predictions would they would you make about online video? I really like the. I think diversification of platforms is is huge. I feel like it's not enough to just be on one anymore. You kind of have to go everywhere and you know cater to each platform differently. So you can't just make a Vine and throw it on Instagram and throw it on YouTube. It's got to be. And you've got to have a specific, this is my content for Facebook and this is my content for Instagram and this is my content for Snapchat and this is my content for Musical.ly and this is my content for Vine. And so it's, you know, the list kind of is growing, but we're looking at all these different platforms and, you know, trying to help support the creators that are on there because that's really kind of at the core of what we're all about. Do you see different platforms emerging in, say, Korea or uh, Japan as well. I think a lot of the, I think Vine is getting popular over there, but I think a lot of the same platforms that are big over here are growing over there. They're a little bit behind, but I think they're catching up quickly. You know, I really am excited about the growth of Vine overseas, and I think Korea and Japan are, are great markets. Um, so that's the main one. We we are looking, we're doing some stuff now with Musically here, which has been really cool. Snapchat obviously is is massive. I'm really interested to see what Facebook does next year. I mean, really, we're the largest owner of Vine content out there. I mean, other than Vine, basically, we're the largest rights holder of Vine content. So for the fact that there's no way for us to monetize that on Facebook or really enforce those rights on Facebook is really frustrating. So we're really looking forward to finding some kind of solution there because I mean, not just the vines, but the creators themselves, they really deserve the opportunity to, to monetize their own content on Facebook and freebooting has been a a huge problem. You want to explain for listeners just what freebooting is? Yeah. So one of our creators, this girl, Liza, she's got millions of followers. She, this is just one example, right? Makes a funny video of her, lip syncing in the car and somebody else posts it to their Facebook, does a native upload, doesn't credit her, tag, don't tag her. And it gets like 50 million views. You know, that particular page gains likes and fans and followers. And then also puts, you know, their own advertising links within their Facebook feed, which is a popular thing. Now people can post affiliate links that when users click on those, they make money for that traffic. So they're making money off this. They're basically ripping the content from other places and just, you know, repurposing it without any payment or credit to the actual owners of that content. Yeah. And it's a huge issue on Facebook today, right? Yeah. Pirating content, even if it's not directly monetized, which Facebook yeah. needs to have some sort of system analogous to YouTube's content ID to yeah. track those uploads. They are building an audience profile off it and indirectly monetizing through yep. affiliate marketing and other, other means, as you mentioned. You've talked so much about what creators are doing across platforms and trying to build a comprehensive digital strategy. What are the common mistakes that you see creators making? I would think more commonly, what mistakes are brands making? I think it's really tricky when you're dealing with with brands. I mean, for both sides, creators and brands. And, and one big mistake is that creators will do something that's not authentic in order to promote a brand. And it can come across as turn off to their followers. And it can also be perceived negatively for the brand too. So if the 
integration is not authentic and if the content is not really in their voice and fits to what they're doing with the brand, then that could have a real negative impact. I mean, people can tune out, you know, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of, a lot of popular YouTubers who, who kind of did too many brand deals during a certain span lose traffic, like mm-hmm. significant numbers of trap because of, of their audience. audience. They, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have to be careful when you, when you're working with brands, you want to work with, you know, good brands and, and try to maintain a standard for that content. If you were starting a business in the online video or digital media space today, what would you do? Just knowing me, I try to think like really far down the road. So if I was starting out fresh from scratch, I would be looking at virtual reality, 360 video. I would be looking at ways to start companies that are utilizing that because I know that it's really well ahead of the curve so that by the time it's 10 years down the road, I'll be starting my second virtual reality company and then that one will be a big hit. (laughs) Smart. And would that be virtual reality working with creators, working with brands, working? I I have no idea. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, I would just want to be figuring out that space and kind of diving into it and looking at augmented reality and virtual reality and looking at geo enabling stuff through your phone with augmented reality and what just all of these future technologies of entertainment and kind of how that plays into what people are going to be watching and what people are, what kind of content people are going to be consuming, because I don't think it's going to replace traditional television. I don't think, I think traditional people still will like to watch TV, whether it's on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, or YouTube or whatever, people are going to want to watch, you know, a screen without wearing something over their eyes and looking around in every direction. But there's going to be a big market for the stuff that really, really utilizes that new technology as well. So who's doing the best job with those new technologies today? I do think, I mean, I'm really impressed by YouTube. I'm really impressed by Google Cardboard. I'm really impressed by how they've integrated the 360 video into you know, if you just watch a video on your iPhone and you have the latest version of the YouTube app, you can spin around and use that 360 feature. It's really cool. And I, I think that the fact that they've just kind of turned it on for YouTube is really awesome. I'm very impressed by them. I haven't played around so much with the Oculus. I'm sure it's awesome, but I haven't played around with it so much. So I don't know as much about that, but you know, I just think 360 is really cool. And then I think AR is really cool and I don't really know how to use VR yet. So (laughs) it's all coming. We'll see what happens. Yeah. What recommendations or advice do you have for people listening? I mean, I think if you want to get into business, I think, you know, execution, I said that earlier, that's kind of my main point of advice. Just if you're going to do something, figure out a way to to follow through and execute on that. Cause if you don't, then you're never going to be successful. Wise words. And where can people find out more about you and more about collab? Well, our website is collabcreators.com and you can find out more about me on there. I guess I'm not, I don't really tweet that much or use Twitter. I, I guess I pers- my personal social media, I kind of keep a low profile and I, tend to leave social media to my girlfriend, Lauren, uh, Francesca. She's all over social media. So you can 
follow her if you want. <laughs> but, you know, I, I try to keep a low profile, I guess. Well, James, thanks so much for being on the show. This was so yeah. much fun. And uh, thanks for awesome having insights. Me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.